All right, all right. If you have your Bibles, grab them, 1 Corinthians. Yeah, I'll, move, I'll back mine up. All right, it's a long one today, so get ready to stand out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Good morning, we're reading 1 Corinthians 15, 12, to the maps. Okay. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But... If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Four, if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. 
There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But is it not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, then the spiritual? The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so were those who are the dust. And as the man in heaven, so were those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then it shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Bretta. There is a scene that most of us in this room are all too familiar with. Now, the little ones in our room might not be, but most of us are. You put on some sort of black outfit, some sort of suit, some sort of dress that you haven't worn in a while. You come into a room like this or to a funeral home. You walk in, you see a casket or maybe an urn, some pictures, music lightly playing in the background. You sit down. There are a few songs that are played. People get up and they, they talk about this person who is lying in a casket before you. They talk about their life. They talk about memories. Maybe there's some chuckles and some laughter and there's a lot of tears. And then there's supposed to be something else. But what, what is it that we could say as we are standing in this room grieving, hurting, because this person, this is an empty shell, a body, a corpse laying in front of us. What hope is there that could be given? What could we possibly say that would help, that would comfort, that would move us to some place of stability so that we're not just crying and mourning all of the time? 
What else is there to say? Besides the laughter and the memories and the sharing feelings. Christian funerals are distinctly different. They are distinctly other. Because Christian funerals, unlike every other type of funeral in the world, gives the only sort of hope that can be given because of one fundamental truth, the resurrection. In this letter, Paul has addressed particular problems that he has heard about through the grapevine, or he has gotten from letters, and he has answered questions, he has addressed issues, and this morning, there come to Paul's attention an issue about what they believe about the resurrection. It was an issue in the church that this church was facing. The question of, is the resurrection true, both of Jesus and ours? And if so, how do we know that it's true? And what does it matter? And even questions surrounding the relationship between the physical, the body, and that of the immaterial soul. And in this glorious chapter that I wish we had weeks to spend on, Paul seeks to answer those questions. So here are a few things that I think we need to know about the resurrection. Number one, every truth about Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Every truth. Every single one about Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. When I say every truth about Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, that's not hyperbole. That's not a rhetorical device. It is simply true that Paul in the text, he points out really in kind of five ways. Notice verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. First way that, that this hinges on, uh, on everything being true is if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, the first leaders of Christianity were liars. If the resurrection of Christ is not true, the apostles, the disciples, the first uh, leaders of Christianity were liars. The resurrection of Jesus wasn't some sideshow. It wasn't something that the disciples came up with down the road to make Christianity seem more legit. It wasn't the tangential part of their message. Paul literally said in verse 3 of this chapter that we looked at last week that the resurrection is of first importance. It is the most important thing. If Jesus was not bodily raised from the dead, the apostles and the first main leaders of this movement were not just off by a few details. They didn't just get a little bit of it wrong. They would have been misguided religious guys. They, I mean, they're not just misguided religious guys that got too excited. They would have been frauds and liars, tricksters. And if that were true, you can imagine the scrutiny of this whole thing would come under. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Second thing, if the resurrection of Jesus is not true, your faith is pointless and your sins are not forgiven. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, your faith is pointless and your sins are not forgiven. The resurrection of Jesus, it kind of functions like the validation of, of God accepting the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross to atone for our sins. The resurrection of Jesus is like a receipt. Right, it's like when you go and you go to a store and you buy something, they give you a receipt of confirmation that the thing you bought has been paid in full. Well, when Jesus lay dead in the ground, 
He had not accomplished, we didn't know if he had accomplished anything just yet. If Jesus, as he lays dead in the ground, it could have been like what Ben Shapiro says about Jesus, that he was a religious zealot that started a movement and he got killed for his trouble. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, your faith is misplaced. But because it is true, the resurrection functions like a receipt saying, your sins paid in full. And here's the receipt for proof. Verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, death is the end and we have no hope. If the resurrection is not, of Jesus is not true, then death is the end of the story. It's the end of the rope. It's the final thing and we have no hope. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, then when you sit in a funeral for a loved one who had died, it's nice to hear about their life. It's nice to remember the fond memories of who they were. But imagine that that is all the funeral was. Standing over a hole in the ground, saying some nice things, saying some things about who they were. And that was it, that there was no hope in that. If so, then death has victory. If that's the case, then death has won because death is the end and it gets the final word. And it claims us. And only dark and gloominess is left. Our loved ones then are gone forever. They have simply ceased to exist, eventually forgotten, and are no more if Christ is not raised from the dead. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If the resurrection of Jesus is not true, we should be pitied for believing such a fairy tale. If it's not true, we should be pitied for believing such a fairy tale. If the truths of Christianity were only focused on helps for this life, things that make this life better, and there was no hope for the afterlife, people should pity us. Not to mention, Christianity doesn't offer a whole lot in this life. I mean, it offers some things, like it offers persecution, it offers distress, it offers sacrifice, it offers that you got to love your enemies, it offers that you got to forgive your enemies, it offers you to do a lot of really hard stuff. That's all we, if that's all we get, it ain't worth it. If the truths of Christianity are all fake, if this whole church thing, this whole forgiveness of sin thing, this whole Jesus being the king of the universe thing isn't true, then we have given our lives to a fairy tale king. And we should be pitied among all people because we've wasted our lives on a gimmick. And that's why Paul says in verse 32 that if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If Jesus' corpse is rotting in the ground somewhere, then we should abandon the church. We should stop singing and stop worshiping. We should stop sacrificing and laboring, stop following Jesus' teachings altogether. We should give it all up. And instead, we should live it up and do whatever makes us feel good in the moment. We should eat and we should get drunk and we should uh, uh, do drugs and we should sleep with whoever we want to sleep and we should lie and we should steal and we should cheat to get ahead and do whatever makes us better. If Jesus is dead, that means all of this existence that we live in is random and arbitrary and pointless. And so go live for yourself and do what makes you happy in the moment. 
And so if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, none of this matters. All of them were liars. There's no hope. Just go do whatever you want because death is coming for you. So live it up before death gets you. But there is a but. And I love buts in the Bible. The Bible has the best buts. In verse 20, it says, with one T, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. If he's not, go live however you want, do whatever you want. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so all of that hopelessness, if Christ is in the ground, is true. But that's not the case. That's not the case because Jesus actually is not rotting in the ground somewhere. He was raised from the dead. Literally, physically, historical, for three days he laid dead, but now he is alive. And so the second thing is the resurrection of Jesus is true. The resurrection of Jesus is true. But how do we know that? How do we know it's not a fairy tale? How do we know that the resurrection is true? Like, is it just blind faith? We just believe it because we're told to believe it? Do we just believe it because the Bible says it? Well, yes and no. We believe it because the Bible says it, but we also we believe it because all of the evidence supports the claim. I stumbled upon a video last week as I was getting sucked into reels on Facebook. I got sucked into one. And it was built, does that ever happen to y'all? You're like, I've been sitting here for an, no, y'all all lied. <laughs> I was watching, and it was a video with Bill Maher, who is the HBO late night host guy. And he was on a podcast uh, with some other guy, I don't know who he was. And, and the other guy was talking about how he just read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And how he, he's like, he's like, he said this, I didn't realize that there was actual factual evidence that Jesus was a real person. And that he was raised from the dead. Well, Bill Maher wasn't having it. Bill Maher was like, no, nah, that's baloney. Um, and, and so they begin to argue. This guy's like, you know, I'm trying this Jesus thing because I didn't know all of this evidence existed. And Bill Maher begins to argue with him about all of this evidence supporting the historical existence or accuracy of the claims of Jesus and of the resurrection. And here is the thing that I was dumbstruck by watching this and really heartbroken. All of the arguments Bill Maher made were wrong. He said that the four Gospels were written 70 years after the life of Jesus, and so, which is true. So that those guys that wrote these Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they only heard about Jesus from other people. That it was like the game of telephone. That they heard it from some people who heard it from other people who heard it from other people, and then they wrote it down. And I wanted to yell at my screen, Matthew was like a disciple! John was a disciple. He was literally an eyewitness of Jesus. You don't know what you're talking about. And so he's not believing something because he has all this wrong information. And so what does Paul teach us here? What is he, what is he doing for us here? Well, I want to show you that the evidence, the why we believe in Jesus is historically accurate. And ultimately, the evidence that points that the resurrection actually happened. All right, so number one, we have eyewitness accounts of Jesus. We have eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Bill is wrong. He's right when he says that the book of Matthew and the other, other gospels were written around 70 years, or 70 AD, which is actually like 40 years after the life of Jesus. But Bill felt, fails to realize that Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. That Matthew is an eyewitness. 
He, was a, he saw Jesus. He walked with Jesus. His firsthand knowledge was, so is John. Luke traveled around to, to compile eyewitness testimony about Jesus. One of the things that you see in the gospel accounts is, is that the gospel accounts, they don't read like fiction. And one of the ways that we see that they don't read like fiction is because there are these random people's names. Like, for example, when Jesus is carrying the cross up to Golgotha, it says that, it, you know, he stumbles, he begins to have a hard time, and someone else, a guy named Simon of Cyrene, comes to help him carry the cross. Well, why does it say that? If you're just making something up or, or, or whatever, why would it mention this guy's name? Why, why would it just say, and somebody helped him, or just skip that detail altogether? Because it doesn't really matter to the story. Well, it says it, and there are plenty of other places that mention these people's names because it was a first century way of adding a bibliography to the account. It was a first century way of adding a footnote. The point was to say that if you doubted the accuracy of the narrative I am telling, you can go ask Simon. He lives in Cyrene. He's still alive. Go ask him. And then Paul in this section, he says, and 500, 500 people have seen the resurrected Jesus. Go ask him. Paul says, he's like, look, don't take my word for it. Go ask Peter. Go ask the other 12 disciples. Go ask James, the brother of Jesus, who James did not believe Jesus. He thought Jesus was a phony until he saw his brother die and come back to life. Go ask James. Go ask these other 500 people, some of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? Because they're still alive. They're eyewitnesses. Go ask them. So often people think that the, the resurrection of Jesus was a myth made up later by the followers of Jesus to boost the message in order to get the teachings of Jesus some life. Some people think that the telephone effect happened or that just kind of over time legend formed and it began to get exaggerated and, and people began to make things up. But the problem with that is that Paul's letter to the first Corinthians, or to the Corinthians, first Corinthians, was written in 53 AD. And not even liberal atheist scholars debate that fact. It's a pretty settled fact. In the first Corinthians, Paul quotes a hymn earlier in the book, that was being sung in church is a hymn that mentions the resurrection of Jesus, and the hymn is dated back to two years after the crucifixion. <laughs> that is not enough time for legend to form. Let me prove it. I want to imagine, imagine that I came out and said, guys, I've got a bombshell claim. Some of you love Elvis, but Elvis, the king of rock and roll, never existed. His music was made up in a studio by, by computers. It was sold. The images of him were photoshopped. It was all made up. Elvis didn't exist. His music was made up in a lab somewhere. Y'all would look at me and say, that's not true. I went to his concert. you say, that's not true. My, my dad went to his concert. I, he's still alive. Go ask him. You would say, it's not true. I've seen him. I saw him on TV. I listened to him. I went to his concert. I was there. That wouldn't fly because there's eyewitness accounts, many of whom are still alive. And that was almost 50 years ago. And if 50 years is not enough time for legend to form about Elvis, it's not enough time for legend to form about Jesus because the eyewitnesses are still alive. The second thing, it makes no sense that the disciples would make up the resurrection. It doesn't make any sense that they would make it up. You could try to claim that the disciples lied about the resurrection and made it up, but the problem is, what possible motivation would they have to do that? 
When you lie about something, it's almost always to get money, to get power, or to keep yourself out of trouble. But the resurrections got the disciples in trouble. It didn't get them any money, and it didn't get them any power. It just made their lives incredibly difficult. And every single disciple, with the exception of John, John was exiled to an island, but every disciple went to their death claiming that the resurrection of Jesus was true. And how many of you guys would go to your death for a lie? I would. Third, there's no body. No body. One of the things that would have shut down this whole Christianity movement from the start would have been that the Jews or the Romans would have produced the body. Hey, guys, this whole thing is a phony. It's a sham. Let me roll the, to- the, the stone back. Y'all come look at his, his corpse is still laying in the tomb. These guys are just making stuff up. If they would have done that, the movement would have died right then and there. The disciples would have lost credibility. No one would have listened. But they couldn't produce the body. There was no body to show. Now, the body was under Roman guard. And so there's like no way that a bunch of fishermen and some nerdy tax collector dude was going to go take out some Roman centurions in order to steal the body away. And even if they could do that, what would be the purpose? What would it gain them? Ridicule, trouble, arrest, beatings, death. Yay. Cool. D, women discovered the empty tomb. At this time in history, the word woman, the, women held no weight. Their word held no weight. Their word could not be used in the court of law as testimony. And so if you were inventing a religion and you wanted people to believe it, it would make no sense for you to make up the fact that women had discovered Jesus was raised from the dead. You wouldn't do it if you were making this up. The only explanation for the disciples to share this fact that they were all doubting up in an upper room, crying and figuring out what to do, and the women went and figured it out, the only reason you would say that as if it was true. A theologian named N.T. Wright said it like this. All other explanations for how Christianity started and for the truly remarkable and unlikely birth of the church and its incredible rapid spread in the face of all odds, all those other alternative theories are far less compelling than the one the early Christians themselves provided that Jesus rose from the dead. One historian, German historian, wrote it like this. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. And that's the problem. We hold to many historical truths with far less evidence. If we just follow the evidence, we would conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ was not only real, but that he was killed, and that on the third day he was raised from the dead. And so if all the truths of Christianity hang on the truthfulness of the resurrection of Christ, then praise be to God, he is alive. Now we get to the pinnacle of Paul's argument. Go to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... 
By amen came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also Christ shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until his, he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. If Jesus was raised, then we too will be raised. From the dead. Paul is addressing this question or this error that he's heard uh, written to him. In verse 12, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, some of the Corinthians were not only denying the resurrection of Jesus, but had a fundamental misunderstanding about the afterlife. They had a misunderstanding of the body and the soul. See, these were Romans, and Romans were heavily influenced by philosophers like Plato and Plutarch. And if you have ever taken a philosophy class, you have learned about Plato and Plutarch, who lived a few hundred years before Jesus. Plato taught that humans existed with a body and a soul. This is a pagan. He's a Greek philosopher, and he said that, that people believe, he believed that they existed both body and soul. And your, when you die, your soul enters the afterlife, and your body ceases to exist. Both Greek and Roman philosophy taught that there was an afterlife, but it wasn't physical, that it existed in the spiritual world somewhere. Plato called it the realm of the forms. It was up there. And it was that sort of thinking that caused the Corinthians, who were Romans, uh, to misunderstand the hope of the afterlife that Jesus came to bring. And guys, I'll tell you, we have the same problem. So often our thinking about the body and the soul uh, uh, and the afterlife, believe it or not, is shaped more by Plato than by Jesus. Today, some 2,400 years after Plato existed, we are more shaped by Platonic thinking about the afterlife and the body and the soul than we are Jesus. When we think of heaven... We think heaven is some far away, spiritual, disembodied, ethereal place. It's in the clouds where we're going to go play harps in a celestial shore, like our hymns say. We're going to fly away to glory, right? When most of us think of heaven, we think of this place in the clouds. We're going to wear white toga things and we're going to play harps. We, like the Corinthians, think heaven is up there. And we think heaven is good, and we think that our bodies and the earth is bad, and one day we'll pass away while we live in glory. And Paul is here to correct the Corinthians and to correct us. When we think that Jesus, what Jesus has done is merely save us out of and from this broken world, that we might escape this world and fly away to be taken up into heaven, we fail to see what Jesus actually came to do. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? If we die and go to heaven and that's the end, then death has won. If the end of, the, of our existence and the afterlife is that our bodies die, we die, our souls go float up to heaven, then death has won. Death has victory and death has a sting. But Jesus came to defeat death. And how is it that we know death is defeated? Because when death does not have the last word, 
Jesus died and he was placed in a tomb and it seemed like all hope was lost. But death was defeated because death was swallowed over the victory that Christ was raised from the dead. We die, yes. But death cannot be the end of our story. Like Christ, we too will be raised from the dead. Verse 42, Paul uses this illustration to help us understand. He says that when you plan to seed in the ground, in order for that seed to grow, to sprout, to germinate, the seed has to die. The husk, the kernel of that seed has to die in order for new life to sprout from it. And in the same way, we lay our bodies in the ground like the husk of the shell that has died so that we might be raised imperishable. So that we might be resurrected with glorious bodies forever. The only way death can lose its sting is if death is a pit stop on the way to a resurrected life. Which is not our souls. Flo- you know, we have this vision of heaven. It's like we're going to get there. Hey, man, good to see you. Float on over here. Like, w- that's not how, you know, I, for me, I picture Bugs Bunny. You know, for me, that's, what, that's my theology when I grew up was Bugs Bunny. You know, he's always dying and going, to his, you know, this little ghost-like Bugs Bunny would fly up and he'd float around on a harp in the clouds. But God made the world. And when God made the world, what did he say? It was, uh, kids, all right, kids, listen up. When God made people, he said they were what? They were very good. And so God has made this world, and he's made it perfect and good and glorious. And we come and we screw it up. And so is then God just like, well, you know what? They screwed it up. I guess I'm done with that, and I'll just rescue out of it. I'll bring you up here to the place that you can't screw up. No! That's not what he's doing. He's not just throwing out his whole creation because we screwed it up. When Jesus came to this earth, what did he do? He healed the sick. He made the lame walk. He caused the blind to see. He calmed the storms and he walked on the water. Why did he do these things? Well, you say it's it's so that he could prove who he was. Yeah, that's true in part. But he was showing us a glimpse of the world that is to come. The world we were always meant to have. A world that we get to have again because Jesus did not come to make new things. He came to take a world that was good and that has been messed up and to make all things new. He came to take what was broken in us, what was broken in the world, and make it right again. To make it whole, to bring resurrection to everything. And so we have to reject this thinking of Plato. That the body and the physical world is bad and that the soul alone is good. We are not meat suits carrying around divine souls. We are whole people made up of mind, body, heart, and soul. And those things cannot be separated. The victory of Jesus is not that he just saves part of us, that he saves our souls. He did not come to just redeem your souls. He came to redeem your minds and your hearts and your souls and your body. Do you know why the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans burned their dead? They burned their dead because they had no use for these bodies. They were going up to Valhalla, or they were going up to the afterlife, to the realm of the forms. They were going up somewhere to some spiritual world. The body didn't matter. But why is it that Christians 
have historically buried their dead. We bury them because we believe the body matters, the body is important, and that God is going to come and raise it from the dead. And so the hope for every Christian is that one day Jesus will walk up to your grave and he will speak your name like he did Lazarus. And he will say, Lazarus, come forth. He will look out and he'll say, Connor, come forth. He'll look out and say, Patty, come forth. Look out, Rusty, come forth. He's going to call your name and you're going to climb up out of that box, climb up out of the ground, and you're going to be physical body, fully in strength, going to be able to run, be great. Those knees that were weak, the hips that didn't work anymore, the wrinkles, the, what, all that's going to be resurrected to perfection. That's our hope. Our hope isn't that you're going to die and Go on by and by to, to glory up in the clouds. No. Our hope is we're going to be raised from the dead. And so how is it, oh, death, where is your sting? We go to a funeral home. And someone who trusted in Christ, we are sad. It hurts. We miss them. But we know that the missing them is temporary. And so the sting of death is gone. Because death is just a pit stop on the way to a resurrected life. Because we know that one day we will hold our moms in our arms again. We will hold our grandparents in our arms again. We will hold those children that we lost to early in our arms again. These arms, your arms, will wrap around the, the raised bodies of those loved ones who have passed. That is our hope. But when you go to a funeral of someone who did not know Christ, the sting is still there. The sting is real. Because our only comfort is that one day Christ will come and wipe away our tears. And that we will somehow trust that what he has done is right, knowing that that loved one is not with us. The message of the gospel gives us this glorious hope. A hope that death itself will be defeated. That we will live forever, not in the clouds, but right here under this dirt with Christ forever. In a world that we can hardly fathom. If you are in Christ, a glorious, eternal resurrection is your future. It is your hope. Death will not have the last word. Archaeologists have gone to uh, where Corinth was. And they have unearthed uh, uh, tombstones that were there. And many of them have one word written on them. Resurgum, which means I will rise again. So let me close by asking you this. If you know that your future is set in stone, and that no matter what happens to you in this life, that you will be raised in perfection, how would that change how you live today? For people like Jim Elliott, it meant that they could go risk and ultimately lose their life on the mission field. For some, it means they can be radical in generosity because they know they're not going to take their money with them. Why would your money matter in a place where the streets are paved with gold? It means that when tragedy strikes and you lose a loved one, you don't have to be crippled and paralyzed by sadness. It can be sad, yes, but the hope will get you through. You will miss them, but you'll know you'll have them for eternity. And it should give us courage. Courage to take the gospel to the lost because the truth is on our side. And the only hope that there is in the world 
is ours, and we have it, and we know it. And whether people believe it or not, this is the message that everyone wants to be true. They might be the most staunch atheist and be hate religion and all these things, but deep down they want this to be true. And imagine if you took the time to show them that it actually is. I love in the last battle, which is the seventh book in the Narnia series, um, I won't, I'll try not to spoil it, but some people have died, and uh, they are in true Narnia, and they're discovering it, and all the wonder, and uh, one of the, you know, in Narnia, animals talk, and there's a unicorn named Jewel, and Jewel says, she looks at, behold, true Narnia, she says, this is the world I have always longed for, though I never knew it till now, and man... <laughs> We think we can imagine what a resurrected life is like, but when we get there, it will be the world we have always longed for, and we only got the tip of the iceberg of our thoughts around what that place is going to be like. Listen, for some of you, for those of you that are in Christ, this world is as close to hell as you will ever come. And for those of you that are outside of Christ, this world is as close to heaven as you will ever get. Even now, for those of you who do not trust in Christ, you are tasting some good fruits of this life, enjoying the good things that God has given you. And even with this world and all of its pain, life can still be good. But to die apart from Christ and the good things of the earth will be the best things that you ever get. But for those in Christ, God is bringing you a renewed, physical, eternal kingdom, which includes a glorified and perfected version of every beautiful thing that you love in the world. I can't wait. You know, I have experienced earthly beaches. I have experienced earthly filet mignon. I have experienced earthly football. An earthly technological advancement. And I cannot wait to experience a new creation, resurrected version of those things. Oh, I can taste it now. What's coming in this world is what you have always longed for. And so, Randy Alcorn put it in his book, Heaven, like this. If God allowed sinful humanity to put a man on the moon, what will he allow his resurrected humanity to do? I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that the hope you give to us is the same reality that you have already proven you can do and that you have raised Christ from the dead. And Father, for those in this room who who belong to you, who have trusted in you, who you are their king, Lord, I pray that this hope would, would reverberate throughout their whole life. Let it give them confidence at, at every, every death that they experience, every tragedy they experience, every hardship. And that it would give hope uh, and, and it would give courage in the midst of trying to, to do things and live out this life. That it would free them from the fear that the worst thing that can happen to us is we die and all that does is send us to a resurrection a little bit sooner. But Father, for those people in this room who this hope is not theirs... Because they have not trusted in Christ. This hope is not theirs because uh, they've maybe believed in God or maybe they're far from God. But they've not made Jesus the king of their life. Father, this morning I pray you give them the courage to say, I want to taste and see what all of this fuss is about. Because if it's true that this world is broken and God is going to make it all new and he's going to let us be a part of this whole kingdom forever, I want to be a part of that. If you're here this morning, I can pray with you about anything, about grief that you're going through, about uh, what it means to trust in Christ or anything else. 
I'm going to stand up over here to your right, and it would be my joy to pray with you. Father, we love you so much. In Christ's name we pray, all people said. Amen. Let's stand and sing.